Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FCI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FCI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. Global organizations are a microcosm of the countries and cultures in which they operate. Understanding the customs, language, business practice, and cultural norms is an essential part of conducting effective investigations when operating outside of the U.S. In many parts of the world, the business practices and cultural norms tacitly endorse bribery, corruption, and other financial and property crimes. And yet, companies are expected to operate within the law in each country in which they operate and to follow the standards and practices delineated in the organization's code of conduct and corporate compliance program. Compliance programs are expected to have certain program elements, including mechanisms for confidential reporting of suspected wrongdoing and an efficient and reliable and properly funded process for investigating the allegations and documenting the company's response, including any disciplinary or remediation measures that have been taken after the investigation has concluded. Conducting investigations in certain parts of the world can be challenging because of the business practices, language barriers, and cultural differences of those countries, where in some instances, conducting investigations is discouraged or even unlawful. When you overlay the travel strictures of the global health crisis, challenging doesn't begin to describe it. Fortunately, today's guests are two experts in cross-border investigations who are more than equal to the challenge, Fernanda Loraldi and Yulia Maximenko. Fernanda is a senior director, ethics and compliance at Cummins Inc., which is a global manufacturer of engines and related technologies the company employs over 58,000 people in approximately 190 countries and territories. Prior to joining Cummins, Fernanda was a senior legal counsel at global aerospace company Embraer, based in Brazil. Yulia Maximenko is a managing director with FTI Consulting, where she manages and executes international investigations, fraud prevention and detection, FCPA compliance, and other forensic projects, with an emphasis on engagements in Russia other former Soviet Union republics, and Eastern Europe in general. Prior to FTI, Yulia was with the forensic practices in two big four accounting firms in their U.S., U.K., and Moscow offices. Welcome, Fernanda and Yulia, and thanks for joining me today. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for bringing us here today. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you both. So, Fernanda, the terms organizational culture and ethical culture are frequently a topic of conversation in global organizations. And although it's inaccurate to describe an organization as having a single organizational culture, instead, they're really a patchwork of subcultures that are informed by roles and responsibilities, job title and level, labor union member or management, hired or acquired, and ethnic culture considerations. So investigations are necessary and important, but so is maintaining an organization's culture and morale. So what strategies and tactics do you utilize when conducting investigations to avoid it from having a negative impact 
on these organizational cultures? Okay, well, this is a great question. And again, thanks for having me here. I would say if an investigation affects your culture, you probably don't have a strong ethical culture in the first place. Ethical culture in the organization is a marathon, it's not a sprint. So you really have to, I would say, spend the efforts you would have, a lot of effort to build a culture where people believe that investigations only happen when they have to happen, but also that people feel comfortable when you have to run one of them. So I would say you need to spend a lot of time not only, you know, the tone through the top, making sure you have policies and, and procedures, training people on it, but also training people to trust the system. You have to train people to trust the investigation process. If you don't trust that, and how do you do that? I would say you would constantly inform people about the results of an investigation. You would publish your numbers, publish your investigation numbers, publish how many people got terminated or disciplined because of, of an investigation. Use investigation examples of things that you uncovered and how they were managed within the company. If you don't do that, that shows up at someone, someone's facility, at your facility, knock on your door and say, I'm ready to run an investigation. But people don't really know what the process is. For them, it will feel like a black box, right? And everything that's less than transparent, more opaque, feels that it's not fair. That's not due. Read system against specific individual or a branch or a facility. If you take the time to educate people about when you run an investigation, what is the process and what can happen in the end, that will feel just another day in business. And people would say, yeah, if there's something wrong, I really want you to investigate. I would say invest in the pillars of your culture and not only in a strong investigation process, but also teaching people about what the investigation process is about. You know, I think you just made an outstanding point because one that I try to take great pains to do myself is to demystify process and just say, you know, hey, we're here, you know, we have to be and we need your help. Fernanda, you've got a really interesting work background and also having lived and worked in both Brazil and the U.S., I think people would be interested in hearing from you from a cultural and business practices point of view. What are some of the main differences between an investigation in Brazil and then those that you've done in, the, in say, the U.S.? Okay. I really like this question. Love this question because there's the one main difference that I would tell you about is and it's not only about Brazil, but it's every time you're running an investigation in a tight relationship-driven culture like Brazil is, and you show up in the investigation, you're a U.S.-trained lawyer, and what do you do? The first thing you do is you do an up-down warning, right? It's the first thing you do. And for those listening uh, who are not familiar with an up-down warning, it's from the U.S. Supreme Court case, you have John Company versus United States, a 1981 case. It talks about attorney-client privilege and communications between an attorney and an employee that belongs solely to the company and are controlled by the company. And the company is the only one that can waive privilege and inform uh, an agency and about what that employee said in the interview. If you show up in Brazil and it's your playbook of investigation, say, do an up-down warning, you're trained to do so in-house, and you look at somebody and you go with your up-down warning, they will look at you like you're an alien. Because five minutes ago, you were helping them with some kind of business thing, right? You were reading a contract. I mean, not all, not all companies have dedicated compliance attorneys. They may have dedicated compliance function, but not dedicated compliance attorneys. So 10 minutes ago, one hour ago, two days ago, a year ago, you were helping them with some kind of business issue or you're helping them to overcome some kind of, you know, supply chain issue. And then now you're saying, well, I'm not your attorney, I'm the company's attorney, and I'm not here to help you. 
by the way, everything I, you tell me, I can tell the company and tell our government agency. They don't know what this is about. This concept does not exist in Brazil. It does not exist in a lot of countries. Instead of reading that legalese that somebody prepared or you're, you yourself prepared, try to, I would say, disconstruct a dumb warning without, you know, skipping important steps. Tell them what it is about instead of just reading some piece of paper. So this is something that, yes, it would have to do, but do you have to do it with those words? I don't invite you to try that because doing an option warning without really knowing more of a culture, a relationship-driven company, a relationship-driven country, because you will fail. People will just not understand what this is about. And if they don't understand what it's about, you'll have a problem. That's a great point. The whole Upjohn warning, I've been a party to many interviews John warnings were given, and I've seen the entire spectrum of delivered really elegantly, and the rapport that was built up till that point was uninterrupted to abruptly bringing in interviews and causing people to leave the room. So Exactly, exactly. You know, it's an important thing. People need to be clear in their understanding. When there's a lawyer in the room, they're, and they're representing the company, not the individual employee. But, but boy, there's different ways to deliver that. Exactly. You're an outside counsel or a company that is being brought to do this, and they've never seen you before. Again, the relationship piece of it, the report piece of it, it's kind of frail. You're right in the beginning of stages, and then... The person is maybe already under some kind of, I'll say, anxiety to reset this by startling the person with an upjohn warning. <laughs> yeah, it can be really difficult. As you've seen, Scott, I've seen that before myself, so it can be quite an issue. Julia, you specialize in investigations in Russia and other Commonwealth of Independent States. Unlike the U.S., you know, where the culmination of an investigation might be a criminal referral to the FBI or another law enforcement agency, Law enforcement agencies in Russia and the CIS may not be as an attractive an option to our clients operating in those parts of the world. At times, seems to operate a little bit more like a criminal enterprise than it does a law enforcement agency. How have you navigated those situations where law enforcement in a host country may not be viewed as trustworthy? First of all, I wanted to mention that you're right in saying that an investigation of fraud might end up with a criminal referral to an authority. In reality, it's a, it's a very rare case. And me personally, as an, as an investigator, believe that it's unfortunately a rare case because it creates a risk that fraudsters will go away unpunished. Companies look at the situation and decide it's like probably too expensive or too time-consuming to go this path. Decide to keep it internally and not to reveal any information and not to go ahead with the external investigation. Um, I personally saw a case, and it was actually not a Russian, but a European company, when they just like let the management go and the management was involved in a fraud scheme. And the same group of managers joined another company and recreated the scheme, misappropriation. So it is a big issue and it is actually a global issue. Now, coming back to your question, I would like to say that bad publicity about the host country and its regulatory authorities or police might be exaggerated. I can give you an example of my personal experience when I had a pleasure, and I mean it, I had a pleasure to work with economic investigation team 
from the Russian police. And they were super professional, very intelligent, extremely diligent, and they really helped the client. For example, they got access to the suspect's bank statements, which we as private investigators cannot get access to. And it was like really important to get this data because it actually proved that the suspects were taking the money out of the company and actually were receiving it on their bank account. My advice is like, do not assume, ask. And in this particular situation, I mean, ask for the help of local authorities. The worst case scenario is that they will not be effective or they will not be willing to help you. But I think you should try and do it. Another advice is do your intelligence before you do that. Ask around, talk to local law firms and local companies, which authority you should go to and even which people you should go to. Because, you know, people are different, professionals, some, some are more professional, some are more experienced, some are less experienced, some are more dedicated and motivated, and some are less. So in this case, hopefully you will get the information how to solve your problem and who will be helpful in this situation for you personally, for your company in that country. And finally, I wanted to mention that if it is a relatively big case, for example, Russian or Kazakhstan oligarchs are involved, it's not an uncommon situation to go to London court or New York court or any other European courts to solve this issue. Especially taken into account that these people very often have assets on the territory of those countries. So again, uh, you as a company can go against your former management who misappropriated your assets in a London court. If you bring all the evidence necessary, the court can claim them to return the assets and they, they can actually arrest the assets these people or those companies have on the territory of European Union or elsewhere. Giving me reason to renew my sense of optimism of, of how things are going to go when my next investigation in, in Russia. You know, listen, it is encouraging to hear that. I mean, I think so often reputation is at the leadership level, but, you know, the rank and file, many of them are, they went into law enforcement for the right reasons and they're trying to do the right thing. That's great to hear. And I think that advice that you give about doing some intelligence, figuring out what law enforcement agencies should you consider engaging with and who within that law enforcement agency, because that's very much how, if you wanted to make an effective referral in U.S. law enforcement, it's as much about who within the agency as it is about what agency. Because, you know, number one, you want to make sure that law enforcement agency has jurisdiction over the violation and that it's also an investigative priority for that agency. Because, you know, some agencies have technical jurisdiction over a violation, but in reality, they don't make it a priority, that particular violation, whereas another agency may also have jurisdiction, but it's something that they work to your point about who within that agency, just like in every organization we've ever been a part of, there are people who are hard charging, hardworking and really competent people. There's others that maybe aren't as hardworking or diligent or capable. And, you know, obviously you want the former working on your case and not the latter. So those are really important points that I think people really benefit from hearing. So Russia and China are two countries that are particularly challenging to conduct investigations in. And both are frequently in the news for things like state-sponsored cybercrime espionage. In addition, some countries have state secrets laws that give the state and agents of that state wide latitude to designate information needed for an investigation as a state secret. 
which is precarious ground when you're investigating out away from your home country. What steps should investigators take to safeguard their devices when in country and to avoid coming into possession of information that a foreign government may assert is a state secret? I have to mention that in the majority of cases, again, during our work, we request only the data which is absolutely necessary to perform our work and to complete our project. So that means that we will create a request of the information that we're going to work with. Usually it doesn't contain any state secret information, as you can imagine. We usually work with accounting information, which does not have such sensitive information. At the same time, sometimes we come across it and we solve this situation on a case-by-case basis. As you can imagine, state secret information is very sensitive and highly confidential, and it is available only to a very narrow circle of people and companies. And it is the responsibility of that company or the person to keep it secret and not to release it to any third parties, including consultants. So what they usually do is that they create certain protocols how they keep this data. So they can have a separate server where they keep this information, or they can even um, save it on a hard drive so it doesn't get into the information data or information universe of the company. So you as a consultant cannot simply get access to it. Sometimes they even have it in hard copy only and they keep it in safe. So what I'm trying to say, it's not that easy to come across this information. Um, and therefore, there are no specific procedures that we have in place to, to avoid having this information. At the same time, as I mentioned, sometimes we do need to work with it. And here we work hand in hand with the lawyers. We work with the law firm, which is usually involved in our project an external lawyer to the company, and we also work with general counsel of the company, and we decide what we're going to do in this. I worked on a project with a telecom company in a former Soviet Union country, and we were reviewing their revenues and contracts, and it contains information like names of the clients and phone numbers of those clients. Some of the clients were government officials. So what the company did, they actually blanked out the names of those people before providing to us the report. So in other words, we received what we wanted. We saw the numbers of the revenue. We saw that the government was paying the company for these 10 individuals. We could assess that it was a reasonable amount to be paid. But at the same time, we didn't see the name of the government official next to his or her phone number. So it was a solution which was good for both of us. Another case was when I was working for a mining company and we had to actually quantify the work their vendor made on the on the mines. And we had to get the access to the maps. Those maps of mines obviously contain some information which is very sensitive. For example, fossil fuels locations and the quantity of these fossil fuels, which is considered to be state secrecy information. We discussed this um, situation with the headquarters of the company and their lawyers, and we found the following solution. They created a data room for us. So we as consultants would enter to this room with basically a piece of paper and a pen, and there would be representatives of the company sitting there and watching over us. So we would write down what information we needed, like square footage of the mine and everything else, but we couldn't write down something that is sensitive or like, you know, not necessary for our calculations. In this case, that was the appropriate solution again. Like we couldn't make a copy of the map and the company felt safe about this solution. At the same time, it allowed us 
to perform our work and to be confident that we correctly calculated the amount of work that was done by the vendor. So sometimes there might be a situation, I, I didn't come across it, but there might be a situation when you are getting the possession of the information you are not supposed to get. In this case scenario, you just need to immediately consult with your lawyers because they need to figure out what to do in this situation. How do you make sure that you erase this data from all of your devices so that you don't have any consequences and you don't have to deal with the authorities of the countries that you mentioned? You made some really great points there. I mean, I, I think the, the key takeaway is that you need to anticipate the possibility that you're going to encounter sensitive information that the host country could construe to be a state secret. And you need to have a process in place to make those determinations as to whether or not things might actually meet the definition. You need to come up with criteria for what a state secret is, you know, in the law of the country in which you're operating, and a process just either compartmentalize, wall off, or sanitize that information in a way where you could work with it, but without running afoul of the law. So I did a post-merger integration project in which a lot of FCPA issues were raised in the pre-deal due diligence, and we were working with the client to remediate the FCPA exposure in, in the Chinese acquisition. And a big part of that company, so there was a manufacturing company that sold products into like the logistics sector. Their biggest customer was the Chinese military. Anything having to do with the Chinese military, legitimately, the Chinese state could assert is a state secret, and yet it was the most important part of the revenue base of the acquisition target. So it, it was really challenging. And ultimately, what we ended up doing is, as you mentioned, Julia, we work with outside counsel to construct a process by which Chinese nationals based in China did the initial review of the data that was being requested and then separated out anything that they felt could pose risks of it being a state secret. And they either did the analysis and reported locally and we had no visibility into it, or they provided us with the clean data that they construed to be not a violation of state secrets act. So you have to have a process. You have to anticipate that you are going to encounter this data and you got to have a plan because you know, what you don't want to do is just forge ahead and worry about it later because that, that never works out well. Increasingly, data privacy protection laws carry extremely stringent penalties, such as the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, which can penalize companies up to 4% of revenues for violating personal data privacy laws. Is it best to leave data needed for an investigation? Just leave it in the EU, or is there a scenario under which investigators can bring the data elsewhere? And how does that work when there are broad travel restrictions in place, such as they are? Right now. So you're totally right. Privacy laws are getting stricter and stricter these days, and there are many of them. They sometimes different depending on the country of the information origin. So again, the best solution is actually look at this case by case. Look at the company where the data originates in and decide how you're going to process it. We usually have several approaches depending on the situation. One approach is actually to process and work with the data in the country where it originates from. In this case, we usually use our local office or the local office of the client. We collect it there, we store it there, we process it there, and we come to the uh, conclusions on, on this data. 
Another solution might be to relocate this information, but inside of EU, for example, if we're speaking about EU, we have like a large office in London. Again, we can bring it to London office and then work with it there. And our colleagues there can separate the information containing private data and not containing private data. And again, transport the information that is clean to the U.S. service where we can work with it. That's another solution. So to work only with the information which does not contain any private data. And another solution might be, again, we can keep the information on a server in a database in EU, but get access to it through our systems. In this case, again, the information will not physically cross the border, but we can review it and we can look at it and we can come to conclusions about like our the outcomes of our interview. So this is in a nutshell what, what we usually do. Is it more difficult now with like the restrictions in travel? Yes, it is, but it's not impossible to work with. We, we used to work with it before. Here comes the privilege of being a global firm. We have offices practically in every country the, of the world, so we can ask our people locally to process this data if the restrictions do not allow us to, to send this data further to another office of, uh, in another country. So years ago, I was doing an internal investigation in Turkey, and it was a large-scale embezzlement involved fraudulent lease agreements with medical equipment with uh, losses of around $50 million. When we were getting ready to put investigators on the ground, the Turkish employees of the client and their Turkish lawyers, everyone is in agreement that Turkish culture was such that no witnesses were going to provide meaningful information, but that we should go forward in an effort to try to interview these people anyways, just in order to be able to say that we did, which I think we're all in agreement that that's what the outcome was going to be, but we should try anyway. And despite that preconception, we ended up getting signed statements from 20, all 22 of the witnesses that we interviewed. And what was interesting that we learned as to why that happened is that while Turkish culture is you know, definitely insular and people aren't necessarily trusting of people they don't know, the client organization, which was this household name company, global company, one of the most respected brands in the world, was so important to the Turkish economy that nobody was willing to risk alienating them, which was didn't even occur to us. But it's in human beings are nothing if not complex and unpredictable. So can each of you give an example of a similar situation when the preconceptions of how things were going to play out were just wrong? Very interesting question. Some preconceptions that I've seen happening a little bit earlier in this, you talked about M&A and M&A integration. So I think a preconception that I see very often is, well, the M&A due diligence that we've done uncovered all the issues and then we should just go forward and integrate and start a compliance program in the company that we just acquired and starting anew or just merging what the company already had in terms of compliance with what the acquiring company has. This preconception that the M&A due diligence has uncovered everything that you needed to be able to integrate a compliance program, generally dead wrong. Uh, generally when you're doing an integration, you will find more issues. And the key for me has always been to train the team that's doing the integration too. It won't ever be only compliance people doing integration. You'll have multiple arms doing multiple types of integration. So train those other teams of people that are running integration and swing links close to yours to also raise issues to the compliance team. And integration is very complex. If you have more eyes out there trained to identify issues, the better. 
don't rest in the assumption that everything you had to uncover has been uncovered <laughs> because it won't. Another, you know, preconception that I've seen happening in, in my global work is that, you know, certain countries are more prone to certain types of fraud or corruption and just going into that investigation with that assumption, right? So for instance, there was a case where I need to interview some people in a country in Southeast Asia and knowing that the country is, the perception of corruption in that country is high. Interview started with, this person is never going to tell me the truth, right? In the back of the mind of the investigator is that this person is lying. And the first maybe two minutes of the interview, the person started laughing, their broken laughter. And they said, you know, my religion does not allow me to lie. And they, they said everything, like everything they needed to say with accurate details. So again, that surprised the person, the investigator. He went in there with the mindset of this person is lying to me. In the first five minutes, he gets laughter and then admission of everything that's going on with excruciating details. So that open-mindedness that you have to approach an investigation, it needs to always be there. It doesn't matter if you're going to a country that has a super perception of being super corrupt. Another thing is, I would say, it's not country-driven, it's like a managerial type of perception. So assuming that a person that has been trained in a leadership or, you know, executive leadership or any type of leadership program within your company will always cooperate with your investigation, it's wrong. Again, you go in there thinking something, well, this person has been trained and know what an investigation is about. They are a leader in the company or sending leader in the company and they will do the right thing. No, not true. Had a case that emerging leader of a company actually erased his phone on the way to the interview, like reset his phone, going down the stairs between his office and the interview uh, where the interview was going to happen. You would expect certain things. But as you said, Scott, humans are always unpredictable. <laughs> so some preconceptions, maybe, you know, always keep yourself in check with your preconceptions. That's good advice. Do you have any examples that you can share with us? Yeah, my actual example is very close to yours, Scott. A lot of Russian people, and it's preconception of actual local people, uh, a lot of Russian people are very skeptical about hotlines. And they keep saying, like, nobody will report on a fellow employee. Like, nobody will report on his or her neighbor, even if they're doing something wrong. It's not in our culture. It's not in our mentality. Although I kind of agree with that, I have to mention that 90% of all cases I worked on, on the territory of Russia and uh, former Soviet Union, were sparkled by a whistleblower. So it would be a person who would bring to the top management attention this or that irregularity or fraud. So again, I would not assume in this situation. I would try all the best uh, approaches and like build a hotline in the company, even if you think that it might not work. So many parts of the world are just unsafe with high incidents of violent crime, kidnapping for ransom. And at the same time, we are called upon to investigate powerful, politically connected people, organized crime groups, or tribal warlords. You know, here you've got Parts of the world that are just dangerous, period. Dangerous to be a citizen, dangerous to be a traveler, or a business traveler in particular. And then, you know, the people we investigate are dangerous in their own right. So when traveling to a dangerous country to perform investigative work that may be adversarial, um, what advice do you have to protect the investigated 
team. And when is it okay to say, uh, we shouldn't send anyone there under any circuit? We shouldn't go there without armed executive protection. For me, I'll, I'll just start with this, I would say, prefacing this by saying no reputable fraud and compliance professional can work and avoid when we're talking, geopolitically speaking, right? You just simply cannot assume that you will go there, do whatever you have to do and get out and Nothing's going to happen to you. Or my number one advice is collect intel as much as you can. Right? Collect intel about how actually dangerous that country is, or that facility is, or you know what what kind of a allegation you received, and how it can be connected to people in, in that location. That that's number one. Number two is you could also be talking about how dangerous it is to the reporter to be interviewed, or how dangerous it is to a witness to be interviewed. So when you are facing countries where you know people have are, are prone to be close to windows more often than not, or to drink, you know, poisonous substances more often than not, put yourself in that person's shoes. If you need to be interviewed, do you really want two people in a suit showing up at your facility, put you in the room so everybody knows you were being interviewed? Right? A little bit of empathy, I would say, is appreciated. Try to make it safe for the people being interviewed the reporter and the witness, but also if you need to absolutely send people there, the threshold for me is there's any possibility that somebody gets harmed, I would prefer that we find another way of doing it online. Or I think if one thing that this pandemic has proven is that some of those, some of this work can be done online. It's not preferred to do online, but can be done. Why not go going that route and try to avoid putting people in harm's way instead of just going there for the sake of going there? I think consultants are, you know, sort of particular, well, and for that matter, you know, executives in global companies are, you know, have this default mindset of they always have their passport on them and they're always ready to go some far flung part of the world at a moment's notice. But it is a really prudent thing to just pause to be, all right, what do I know about where I'm going? What is it that I'm doing? And is there anything about what I'm doing that could potentially take already potentially a risky thing and make it unacceptably risky? There have been plenty of examples of where people didn't stop to do that, and you know, and the outcome was was a, a worst case scenario. So it, it needs to be we as executives, we as consultants. It's great to be can do, but you know, be can do with a little bit of tempered by the realities of what a dangerous world we live in, and uh, and making sure that you know, if there is risk or escalated risk, we have a plan in place to mitigate that risk or we were empowered to say, you know what, maybe it's not an ideal scenario, but we're going to do this from a work remote. You know, and, and to your point, the pandemic has taught us anything is doing things remotely may not be ideal, but we can get things done. And you know, maybe that is the solution to avoid putting people in our way. Yeah. And the other thing could be the reverse of the coin too. It's just, do you need to go there? Or can you bring certain people to where you are or to like a midway, a point where you meet in between the two locations and then that person is outside risk and uh, that witness is outside potential risk scenario and you do not have to expose your team to a, an adversarial environment, right? Maybe that's a solution. I, I'm always for thinking out of the box solutions and I had to do a lot of that during the pandemic uh, to be able to, you know, get to the bottom of allegations. It's just safety, harm, putting people in harm's way is not, it's just not acceptable. Absolutely. So, a moment ago, you gave an example witness interviews, and certainly those are a critically important part of investigation. You know, human beings are, in many instances, where the rubber hits the road, 
in an internal investigation. Often, you know, witness interviews are performed in, you know, in a late stage of the investigation and the circumstances, questions, interviewers, and location are all things that should be carefully considered before conducting them, including the, the points that you guys made about not putting them in an untenable situation where everybody knows that they're talking to investigators. Admission-seeking interviews when you're trying to get people to make admissions against their self-interest are of particular importance since the outcome of the investigation could hinge on them. So what are some of the differences in how interviews are conducted in different parts of the world that we should all be mindful of? And then what are some of the common practices that investigators should follow in every country? I think that the majority of approaches and procedures are basically the same. Like open any textbook and you will see certain things like you start with more general questions, for example, and then come to the more detailed ones. What I have to add, like just try not to, from from my perspective, again, try not to cross the line too much and press too much because sometimes it does not help. It actually closes the person. But again, probably it is, you know, international. It's not necessarily a Russian thing. Another thing that I noticed, and I think it's probably fair to any other country. If you have an opportunity to perform the interview in the native language of the person you're talking to, do that. Because I saw different situations, and sometimes it is unfortunately inevitable that we use in the interviews, or the interview is performed by a lawyer who speaks only English. And even if the person you are talking to also speaks that language. He or she sometimes struggles to choose the right words to express what they want to say, and the meaning of the answers is being distorted. So ideally, again, try to speak to them in their native language to make sure that they understand your question, and also to make sure that they are answering them in their native language, because even the choice of words sometimes might indicate to you whether the people are lying, whether they are open, whether they are saying truth or not. So it, it's one of the important aspects to keep in mind. It's a really good point. You know, and in fact, a defense attorney can try to discredit the validity of an interview based on the fact that it has not, it was not conducted in that person's native language. They didn't actually fully understand the question or didn't choose their words carefully because they weren't as proficient with the language as, as they would be if it had been done in the native language. So, yeah, it's certainly important. I'm a big advocate of using the, the same language as the person's native language. I think it's crucial to understand small details about what that person had to report about the allegation. I think the choice of words carries a lot of importance in doing an interview in English, even for a person who's fluent in English or considers himself or herself fluent in English. It's just not the same as doing the language of the person's, uh, the native language of the person. That's number one. When you talk about interviews in each, in every country and what, how can it be done differently or adjust your process? We talked about this a little bit, but in cultures where shame plays a big role, like Southeast uh, Asia countries or uh, Japan or Korea, doing an interview in the facility where everybody works, it's just, not very conducive, the person will really be closed out and won't share the details just because they're ashamed of being there and everybody knowing that they are there. Even if they don't have any part in the wrongdoing, just being a witness just puts them in a very uncomfortable situation. 
we talked about relationship-driven co- uh, countries and cultures too. So choosing a lawyer uh, that the person is familiar with will help you to get a better, uh, I would say, more fruitful result of your interview in countries that are relationship-driven, uh, just because the person will feel more comfortable. Even trying to do that, view that report in the beginning of the interview, if the person doesn't really know who he or she's talking to, may not be as effective. Have some familiar face in the room with that person would be more helpful. And I would say, me, I'm a big advocate for giving transparency to the extent you can, to the maximum extent you can. So again, you're when you're interviewing somebody, what you're trying to get from him or her is their view or their, you know, detailed account of what happened. So not trying to show the person you're not trying to trick him or her into something, but just be as open as you can has yielded good results. Again, it's not foolproof, but it has yielded good results, at least for me. I just wanted to add that the point that Fernanda made about interviewing some of the witnesses in a separate location, it's valid to Europe as well especially if this witness or witness or it's a whistleblower, for example, who doesn't or who doesn't want to demonstrate that they were the source of the information. I had cases when we interviewed such people in hotel rooms or I had an interview in the airport, which was not in the in their country even. So I flew from Russia and they flew from Germany and we met in Switzerland, for example, and we had this interview in airport. I understand it's not like a perfect location, but we found the place where nobody could hear us. And it was the only way out to receive this important information, which was crucial for solving that case. So I just want to add that it's not only applicable to Korea or other countries like that. It's sometimes applicable to European countries too, and probably to the US. Well, and I think the point that you guys both make is that Interviews are things that you need to plan for, that you need to prepare for. I mean, I think a lot of times we come into an investigation and the internal investigation may have been initiated by internal resources that in an organization that doesn't experience a lot of internal investigations. And there are times where the interviews are done right out of the gate. And, you know, it's... It makes it more challenging, I think, to bring an investigation to a successful conclusion because those interviews were maybe not done with the same level of planning that they would be, they would have been done later and the investigators or the interviewers had the benefit of the information that has been gathered and analyzed over the course of the investigation. So, so really, really terrific points. You know, what's a, the other thing that's just amazing about this conversation is I've I've not really worked on investigations with either of you, and yet the common experiences and the overlap and the common point of view is is almost spot on. So that's it's pretty pretty amazing. So well, that's all the time we have today. This has been a great discussion. I, I really appreciate both of you taking time out of your day to share your international investigative experience with with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the invite, and this was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott and Fernanda. I agree. It was fun. Thank you. So that was Fernanda Baraldi from Cummins, Inc., and Yulia Maximenko from FTI Consulting. Stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea for a topic or guest that you'd like to hear from on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fbiconsulting.com. 